Pussy, pussy, it's gonna be a good one today. Yes, I'm talking about a clit talk, clit talk, clit talk. Talking about a clit talk, clit talk, clit talk. Come on, girls and boys and everyone on the gender rainbow, bring your pussies to the show. Happy Tuesday, Clitorati. So last week was super fun kicking off Pride Month, discovering our bonding style with Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. So we have her back because she's amazing. And we want to talk about why the Bonding Project chose her to be the one for their community. So Dr. Eli is an expert in legal issues facing gender and sex minorities, specializing in child custody, divorce, BDSM, employment, discrimination, and criminal offenses. And she also published her fourth book, Children in Polyamorous Families, Research, Findings, and Briefs. So we had to have her back to dig into this more and dive a little deeper to hear about the public service she really provides for the poly community. So thank you for Coming back, Dr. Eli. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be back. Hi. Yes. Okay. Amazing. So let's, let's, let's first get into, obviously you have a huge heart. So what, what draw you to this niche line of work and why is it so important to you personally? What initially drew me was falling in love with someone who didn't want to be monogamous and it freaked me out. When oh. he told me he never wanted to be in a monogamous relationship, I heard that as you're too fat and you're bad in bed. Um. So I heard it as a lack on my part. And he kept saying, no, no, that's not what I mean. So then I heard on national public radio, I heard someone being interviewed. And this was probably 1994. Five, maybe. I heard someone being interviewed and they used the word polyamory and they described this exact kind of relationship that he had been asking for hmm. this whole time and that I was so freaked out about. So I was like, honey, we got to go check this out. So we went and, you know, there was a meeting and I was asking people, how do you do this? How do you live with this? It sounds so outlandish and uncomfortable for me. And they were so delightful and really supportive of me being pretty upset about it because I'm in love with this guy who wants to be with other people. And I was super freaked out about it. So we kind of explored talking to them, the people in this meeting. They had these recurring meetings. We would go back And eventually, then I was in graduate school, and I was like, I need to do research for graduate school. I'm getting my doctorate in sociology. Has anyone ever interviewed you all about this? And so by now, it was 1996. Oh, wow. And they said, no, no one's ever talked to us about this. So I started just doing a couple interviews here and there. And so I think of myself, I guess, as that I started initially with the community as you can't see the quote marks, but I thought of myself kind of as a civilian Mm -hmm. and then transitioned into a research role after I had hung out with them for a while, just socially. Um, And I would say it's been incredibly 
interesting and fulfilling research. It's been fascinating and had all kinds of unexpected findings that I didn't anticipate finding. That part has been so intellectually engaging. It has become my life's work. And it was the kiss of death academically, especially starting as early as I did. Really? Um, Academia has... Yes. Um, Now, there's a lot more research on it, and especially in the field of psychology, they are really full steam ahead, checking out consensual non-monogamies. But it's a topic that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. and that large funding organizations do not want to fund. So when it became clear that I had to get a grant in order to get tenure, I tried and tried, and I finally got this, what my uh, department chair at the time called a measly little grant, and it was so hard to get, and he literally laughed at it, like, oh, $80,000? That's not worth your time, and I was like, dude, it was so hard to get this grant. Are you crazy? But I knew at that point that I was not getting tenure. And once you don't get tenure in academia, you're like the girl that people will sleep with, but not bring home to mom. Like you're tainted once you don't get tenure. So your research prevented you from getting tenure? Oh, absolutely. And has prevented me from getting jobs and Hmm. has been just institutionally has been the bane of my existence. Just because you're doing research. Well, yes. And because they assume that if you're doing what, you know, whatever you're researching, if it's unconventional, then you must be doing it too. And it's fringe and weird. And why Mm. are you doing that? And why are you bringing this up? And can't you go away? Um, Mm. Sociology, I think, used to be had a very liberal period for a while, but has become, as money has become more scarce in academia, sociology has really pivoted Mm. to focus on prisons and medicalization. So if you can't incarcerate it or make a drug for it, it's lower priority (laughs) Mm -hmm. in general, and especially (laughs) ethnographic research on unconventional families. People are like, yeah, no, freaky woman, go away. Yeah, well, the drug industry and prisons make a lot of money, so. Exactly. (laughs) And now academia needs that money. Right. In a way that it hasn't before. Certainly didn't, I mean, it has been grant reliant for a while, but after the Great Recession in 2008, academia changed significantly towards relying on external funding from large granting agencies. Mm. And I have never heard of anyone getting a large grant to study polyamory. They just don't, Mm. like the National Science Foundation. maybe we could change that. (laughs) I sure hope so. And I hope that's one of the reasons we did the bonding project, actually, the last show we talked about. So it could generate that kind of data to show Mm. this isn't as fringe yeah, as people right. think it is. Really yeah, for those of you who didn't listen to our episode that we did with Dr. Eli on the bonding project, we'll link it in the show notes. Really fascinating project that she's starting. We had to do a whole episode on it. Um, so let's dive in a little bit into your book. I am 
fascinated to hear um, about your book is about children raised in polyamorous, like true polyamorous communities. And so can you tell us a little bit about your book and maybe some of the stories that you, that you learned in your interview process? I'm so fascinated to like, I feel like it's like behind the veil. Like I know nothing about this. (laughs) Well, this book is a super short little book that takes about 20 years of my research findings on children and distills them way down. And it's written in this very direct style. So it's not an academic book, even though it uses research. It's very much designed for regular people that you can okay. read it, read the whole thing in 20, 30 minutes. Mm. So the book is called Children in Polyamorous Families. And it's meant for either people who are in polyamorous families and want to explain that to other people like their father-in-law or the school counselor or a lawyer or something. Um, It uses my research findings and it, I guess one of the most useful things about it is it breaks, breaks it down into the age-dependent experiences of children in polyamorous families. Because it really, when we talk about how the family impacts them, it really matters how old the child is. Mm. Also for what they think of their family. So for instance, small children, they don't know what polyamory is. They don't know what sex is and they don't care. They don't want to know about it. Your average four-year-old is just like, that's weird and gross. Can't we talk about something else? (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about (laughs) Play-Doh. Yes, exactly. So for four-year-olds, you know, or two-year-olds or whatever, they don't distinguish who their parents are having sex with from other people in their social environment. Like the babysitter is pretty similar to Auntie Lou, who is similar to mom's girlfriend. You know, they're all kind of similarly not mom woman who takes care of me is what a small child would think. Yeah, that makes sense. Is older children, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, is is four years old, like old enough to be teased about why do you have two dads or why do you have two moms and a dad, you know, like they do, they may not know what's sexually going on, but do you, can you comment on that? Because that would be a. I'm not in a poly relationship. I would just right, right. Well, it would be it would be the same thing that a a child of like a same sex couple that same kind of bullying. Like you have two mommies, you're weird. I feel like it'd be pretty. I would say polyamorous families even less so because gay families are very socially recognizable. Mm. We see two women with their stroller and their dog, and we're like, oh. That's a lesbian family out for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but if you see three people having lunch together, even if you are in a polyamorous relationship, mm. your first thought might not be, that's a polyamorous triad. Oh, right. You know, like polyamorous families really fly under the radar quite a bit. Either they appear huh. as divorced families oh. that get along well, or intact, which is a weird way to put it, like undivorced families with good friends. Right. 
you know, like yeah. they're just yeah. not socially legible. That answers my question. As that makes sense a to family. Me. Yeah, it's so hard, the kids they're harder often, to spot. <laughs> exactly. But I'm going to play um, that the, game with myself now. Every time I see three people, I'm going to be like, they are so a thruple, like in my own home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that. She just ate something off that You're other person's thruple. plate. That's Look at that behavior. thruple over there. <laughs> are you in a just, thruple, Lindsay? Me? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, whatever. Is it Wednesday? Then yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you live with your best friend who's your roommate. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both. Yes, I am in, a, I am in a, like a non-sexual throuple, kind of. Yeah, we joke about it all the time. There was like one weird night. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Are we a throuple, Katie and Lindsay? No. All right, fine. We're business partners, but you can That's call true. it whatever you want, sugar. <laughs> all right. And we're three people. <laughs> we- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget this conversation happened. Back, back, to what, back to what matters, the children. We're not uh, editing oh, this out. <laughs> okay, so. But what about Let's the children? Let's talk about the children. Let's yeah, talk Dr. Eli, you're saying so like Let's a nine, so four-year-olds and then nine-year-olds. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so. Small children, especially before grade school, they aren't really queuing in to numbers of adults around or, you know, they're very much about what the adults do for Mm -hmm. them, but not the adults' relationships among themselves. And that's not just children in polyamorous families. Developmentally, small children are all about themselves and what, you know, how the world relates to them. It's just how little brains work, little kiddo Mm -hmm. brains. It's not until they start to get older and start to distinguish themselves from their environment and then have a sense of their own family as different from other families. They need some kind of comparison. Mm. So many different of my respondents had a similar story where their kid would go on a play date to someone else's house and come home with big news. You guys, check it out. They only have one parent. Oh my gosh. They only have two parents. Can you believe it? You know, what's wrong with them? (laughs) For those children, it wasn't that the polyamorous family was weird. They just took their family for granted. Mm. It was these Mm. other children's families were not as good. They didn't get as much at Christmas. They didn't have eight, 12 grandparents for presents at birthdays, you know. So routinely for the children in polyamorous families, when they realize their family is different from other families, it often appears as a deficit on the part of the other families. Like those poor people, how do they make right? it? Right, <laughs> yeah. You know, without these other partners. I mean, that I mean, conceptually, I think growing up with in a polyamorous community sounds pretty cool. I mean, it's and it and in some ways, I, did you ever fi- have any findings in your research that it's actually more natural in some ways because initially we were we were a tribal culture. Humans were tribal. Um. 
sociologists are very, very nervous about using the word natural or talking about nature (laughs) as a discipline. (laughs) We're very much focused on the social construction of things. Just as a brief side note, there is a field called sociobiology that Mm -hmm. has fallen out of favor because it was horribly racist and sexist. And as a discipline, we're still kind of stinging from, we look back on that research and we're like, oh no, (laughs) no. facepalm, you know, like that was terrible. (laughs) So as a discipline, when people are like, oh, is this natural? We're like, no, no, don't use that word. Don't talk about that. (laughs) But socially constructed, absolutely, it's so much easier socially on the parents and the children yeah, spread that out among multiple adults. And this idea we have right now that the family, the only way to family is two people and their biological children. And that's what counts as the real family. Lots of families don't look like that. And that's kind of a historically small for a family. Like generally families have been in a wider social network, whether it's natural or just it works better that way, to be so isolated and atomized with just two people or one person, it's a lot to put on a parent. You know, anyone who has single parents. Oh my God, I can't even imagine. You don't get enough sleep. You certainly, it's hard to find time to work out. It's hard to go to school. It's hard anyone home with children right now during the pandemic, or it, uh, maybe the, this is released in June, maybe the pandemic's over, I don't know. That'd but I mean, as a nation, hopefully we're paying attention that trying to work at the same time you are raising your children is very difficult. So if you have more adults around to spread that work, around the parenting, the helping with the homework, the discipline, the support, both practically and financially Mm -hmm. and emotionally. You know, it ends up being good for kids and good for parents. And let me say one more thing about that, actually. My respondents, the people in my study, because they have stuck with me for 25 years and they are the ones that were the early adopters. Like they were already doing this in 1996. Mm. They're much more likely to be happy about their polyamorous families. Like people Mm. who are not happy in polyamory will not still engage in a study 25 years later. You know, like the people who hated polyamory went away and I can't find them. They won't talk to me. I would love to know why they went away and what their experience was. (laughs) But the people who have stuck around, yes, totally. I need to know that. Um, So these findings are kind of the optimistic side of polyamory. Not that these families haven't had any challenges at all. They absolutely have experienced difficulties and discrimination and stigma and heartache and death and unemployment, you know, like things natural for, there, I'm using that word now. (laughs) Regular family life has happened to these people as well, but they're the ones whose partners really pulled through for them and really helped them. 
So might there be some really fucked up polyamorous families out there (laughs) who are fucking up their kids? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. More so than monogamous families? Probably not, actually. I think probably less than monogamous families because you can spread that parenting out. Definitely. You know, maybe they're not perfect. But for instance, one of the parents in my study said, like, her first baby was super chill, good sleeper. Her second baby had colic. And colic is really painful for Mm -hmm. babies. It's where they can't digest right. And they've got all this gas and they're just in a lot of pain. So colicky babies cry all the time. They're just very difficult. They can't sleep because they hurt so much. They're very difficult to comfort because they're in so much pain. And she said that if she had had to parent that baby by herself, if she were a single parent, she's not sure that baby would have survived infancy. Mm -hmm. But because Mm -hmm. she had two partners and could sleep all night for two nights in a row and then be up with the baby and then sleep all night for two nights in a row, she felt like that saved not only her mental health, but her infant's well-being. Definitely. Wow. And it was only, it was a brief period of time. It was maybe six weeks or so that it was really acute. But research shows it is those exact six weeks where you get shaken baby syndrome. And people do that when they're at their wit's end and they're exhausted and they aren't intending to hurt their baby, but they're just like, go to sleep. I need to sleep. And she never got to that point because she mm-hmm. had the kind of help that's realistic when when you need help like that. Right. This this seems highly efficient. I mean, this could be the thing that actually turns Katie to the other side. <laughs> Just because it's efficient, I though. I mean, Only. no. No sex, and I'm going to be naked, but no one can touch me. And, and you have to let me sleep for three nights in a row. Hey, Clitorati, we wanted to take a quick minute to share about our Patreon. You know, we absolutely love being able to create weekly episodes and continue to normalize our message of pleasure on earth. Our Patreon is a monthly subscription crowdfunding platform that allows us here at Clit Talk to have the flexibility to expand our message without having to worry about how it's going to financially impact us personally. We are committed to expanding and creating new and exciting things like live events and a safe VIP community so you can share and be heard in real time. So if Clit Talk makes a difference for you and you'd like to connect with us on a whole new behind the scenes level, please consider supporting our Patreon. Your support makes a huge difference for us so we can make a difference for you. Yeah, like, so is do polyamorous communities, is there always sex involved? Or are there some people that just agree to raise their children together? Absolutely. Some people just agree to raise their children together. And I would say that that's a big misconception about polyamory, that the sex is kind of the central focus. Mm. And in my research... I have found following these relationships for, you know, the ones that last for decades Mm -hmm. over time. And really, you know, some of these relationships, now I'm in my 26th year of this study. And some people are, you know, who were big together at the beginning are absolutely still together now, going strong. Sure, the sex is good, you know, and fun and, you know, they like it. 
but it's not the main event. It's a companionship. Much like monogamous people. Exactly. Right. It's the, the community. Emotional <laughs> connection. Yeah. I'm, I mean, like when I hang out with, um, like what I found over the last year and a half is um, that it's not predominantly sexual, as you said. There's something deeper. There's like a this bond that is like almost like can't be understood unless you're in that experience. And that's like a shared bond that's so unique to people that, I mean, literally there's times where like, there's nothing sexual. Um, and I sometimes want it to be, but it's not always the flow. And I've, <laughs> I've learned, I've learned to have some boundaries. I still get in trouble every here and there, here and now and there. Um, but I do. Of course you do. I, st- I have. But. um you sugar. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, but- and that's that important emotional relationship is so important. I made up a new word for it. Like the polyamorous are always making up words to describe yeah. their relationships. You know, conversion yeah. is the feeling of joy <laughs> when your partner yeah. is seeing someone else. Or So I made up this word polyaffective to describe those non-sexual polyamorous relationships. Because generally... Like if you have what they call a polycule, which is a network of polyamorous relationships where everyone is, it's kind of like a chosen family, kind of like an expanded family. And not everybody in a polycule lives together, but generally also not everyone is having sex with each other either. There are people within the polycule who have emotional intimacy, but not sexual intimacy. And it turns out if... Like, let's say um, you've got a partner and then your partner has another partner that is not your partner. That's your metamor, your partner's Mm -hmm. partner who's not your own lover. So when metamors like each other, they can support the relationship as a whole and their individual relationships with their shared partner for decades. When metamors wow. do not like each other, that, you know, if they hate each other, they can't coexist. They're constantly sniping at each other. It makes that family unstable. Right. You know, even if the pers- the partner really loves right. each of those people, when they can't stand each other, then if any of the relationships get in trouble, instead of supporting the whole, they're like, see, I told you, they suck. Mm-hmm. Get away from them, you know, like they they actively work to break it up. I feel like that would be me if this so was the, ever my life. I'd be like, get out of here. Uh, well, but, like, but, no, but could no, you do sucks. a poly could you do a polycule thing, Katie, where there's no sex involved, but you're there's like let's say like there's another couple and you guys all agree to like live in a big house and like help raise each other, like split up. I the mean, mom I duties. before COVID, I would say absolutely not. But after this experience, have my son was six months old <laughs> when COVID hit and um so my husband and I have been going back and forth to Tahoe where his parents live with, and his sister was there. And then we come back to LA where my parents could, could be when they could be in town. So, um, community living, I'm definitely much more open to. And at the same time, once COVID is over, I really just kind of prefer having a nanny. Mm. It's certainly cleaner emotionally, like you're an employee. Yeah. And if things don't work out, then you just go away. Whereas if it's (laughs) a polycule member, you can't just be like, all right, you're fired. (laughs) 
Right. You can't fire someone, you know, one of your other, a polycule. I mean, it's like having a roommate, it seems like. So I'm really curious about, um, this is why I was so excited to have you on, because you often work as an expert witness. And your experience, just from what we've heard today, would be such, so valuable in normalizing polyamorous families and how they operate. And so what you, what you do as an expert witness is you, um, I'm going to read this. This is from your website is you integrate data into testimony and you put your knowledge into social context to help judges and juries understand diverse or unconventional people, their relationships and families. So can you unpack that experience for us. Like, this is where I'm like, this is a public service to the poly community. (laughs) So generally when people in polyamorous relationships have their custody challenged in court, Mm -hmm. if the judge, the family court judges have a huge amount of discretion over how they rule. Um, Generally they decide custody by what's in the best interests of the Mm -hmm. child. And if they are coming from like a religious perspective, then they will probably never rule in favor of a polyamorous family retaining their children. But if they are open to data and have never considered polyamorous families before, then their knee-jerk reaction or research in general indicates a lot of stigma against polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. It makes people really uncomfortable. So judges don't somehow magically exist outside of that. Like they also have social biases that are hard-baked in. So explaining what polyamory is to the judge can really help frame the family. If the judge just hears multiple partners, their mind might go to orgy in the living room every yeah, night. Like not, and, not yeah, like that's bad for right. children. <laughs> no. Right. But if they hear from research findings that these parents are generally not having sex with or in front of their children, that the sex happens behind closed doors in adult-only environments, and what's around the children is family life. Mm. And that as the children grow older, what, you know, so now I'm talking to kids that let's say I met them when they were in preschool and now they're graduating from college And they're talking about learning these communication skills that provide them a lot of emotional resilience. Whether or not they themselves become polyamorous is pretty much irrelevant to the skills they learn in their family about how to build emotional intimacy, about how to negotiate when people have differing wants and needs, about how to tolerate conflict and work through it rather than freaking out or or beating each other up or something, which are kind of unfortunately common conflict resolution techniques with fists. Doesn't really resolve mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. But so polyamorous children or children from poly families never have to go there because they learn they're steeped in 
a high communication environment that's all about trust Mm -hmm. and honesty and emotional intimacy. And so when judges hear this kind of non-sexual component of family life and how it could be, you know, much more common than on a Saturday night in a polyamorous household, you'll find people watching Doctor Who while they fold laundry much more (laughs) commonly than, you know, maybe they're having a glass of wine. Maybe they're playing a board game or something. That's way more common than an orgy in poly family life. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing that um, that's even a thing. It's like so needed. So when I read that on your website, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, because if there's any sort of custody battle or any issue with like someone wants like a, you know, an unaccepting grandparent wants to take the kids away from a poly family. Like it's, um, it's just so valuable to have you and people like you to um, be advocates. And you hit it on the head. It usually is either an ex-spouse who's like, oh, now you ex-wife or ex-husband, now you're in a polyamorous relationship. Mm-hmm. I don't want our kid around that. I want custody. Or a wealthy and religious grandparent yep. who's oh. like, oh, I don't want my grandchild around that. I'm suing for custody. Yeah. Generally, it is not the state. Child Protective Services tends to respond to either abuse or neglect. And I see very little abuse in these families because there are multiple parents. If you're reaching that boiling stage where you want to smack your kid, you can pass it off to someone else and go cool down. And it's the opposite of neglect in these families. In fact, that's one of the things the kids don't like is it's too much adult attention so they can't get away (laughs) with anything. If they try to sneak out, if they try to lie about something, they've got to remember to tell the same story to all of the adults, but the adults talk to each other. So if the kid says something (laughs) different to the adults, they'll figure it out. And the kids are like, man, I can't get away with anything (laughs) in this family. Well, that's so crazy to me. It's like there are so many kids out there that need to be adopted or live in foster care and have no parents. You're really going to try to disrupt a kid who has like three or four parents? Like they sound pretty lucky to me, actually. Absolutely. And they tend (laughs) to be also the households. Not that every single polyamorous family is rich, but when you have multiple adults combining their income (laughs) and combining their home labor... Everybody has more free time. Everybody has more flexibility and you can live in in a better place. Yeah, because if if it's four incomes, you can buy a dope mansion and like probably have your own bedroom. But you'd also need a bigger house because everyone would need their own space. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, sign me up. I'm ready to be Polly. (laughs) (laughs) So do you have any favorite stories from like your constituents that you've served in this way? Um, you mean legally or stories from the research? Either. Either. What stands out to you? Um, I guess one of my my favorite stories is from a very small child that I actually don't 
tend to interview three-year-olds because they have a very short span of attention. Their <laughs> little brains are very jumpy. It's hard for them to have a long, in-depth conversation. As a three-year-old, it just is not happening. Right. So I wasn't even going to interview this kid. She was too young. I was sitting in the living room of her home waiting to interview her older sibling. Mm. She, at three years old, is sitting on the floor next to the little neighbor child who lives right next door. They were both sitting on the floor playing with their dolls and their horses. I think they had plastic horse figurines mm -hmm. and yep. dolls. And My Little Ponies, probably. Something like that, yes. <laughs> um, so... I'm just kind of hanging out with them, not, you know, just waiting for the older sister to come over. And the child from the polyamorous family looks up at me and thinks for a second and then points to her next door neighbor friend and says, she don't got a Dave. And I was like, oh, that's Aww. so sweet. Because Dave was her mother's boyfriend. Mm. And I'm using a pseudonym right. here. Yeah. Um, and it was very clear that this child loves her Dave. And that's what she called him. My Dave, who goes on the fun. Aww. So he's my Dave. And he goes on the fun because he will take her like out for ice cream. He will, he would, and she's much older now, but at the time, um, some little kids, for whatever reason, love to smear makeup on adults' faces. <laughs> and if you're a parent, after your fourth or fifth makeover, you're like, all right, no more eyeshadow. <laughs> This Dave, he appeared to have unlimited patience for her Aww. to smear makeup on his face. He would let her do it all the time. He let her paint his toenails. You know, like <laughs> she had so much fun with her Dave. He went on the fun. Yeah. And her little yeah. friend from next door was clearly at a significant disadvantage because she don't got the Dave. Oh my gosh. And Dave brings a lot to your life. I mean, an yeah. extra pair so of hands that just has is stuck always like an, uh, I mean, an extra pair of hands is always a big difference. <laughs> yeah, totally. Definitely. Uh, well, this has been so incredible. Um, thank you for sharing your over 26 years of research. I know this is just a drop in the bucket of, of, of the research you've done, um, but this is amazing. Your new book is Children in Polyamory. I know you have multiple books about polyamory. Um, if people are, are wanting to dive deeper into this subject and, and um, you know, read about more of your, your different findings. And what is the best way for people to get in touch with you and to find your books and to um, uh, work with you if they choose? I would say that um, maybe the best way to find little nuggets of my findings kind of prepackaged in bite-sized pieces is my Psychology Today blog which is um, named after my first book, The Polyamorists Next Door. So I blog all the time on Psychology Today about my research findings, and that's free. Um, nice. You can also find my books on Amazon or hopefully from smaller book retailers as well. Um, and you can link to all sorts of information from my own website, which is elizabethchef.com. E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-S-H-E-F-F dot -E -F -F com. Amazing. And we will absolutely be putting links to all of that in our show notes for all of you out there listening right now. So don't worry. 
Dr. Eli, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on with us today and 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 really opening. I've definitely learned more about polyamory than I knew before this episode, um, and really just debunking a lot of the common misconceptions around it, and you know, starting a new dialogue for people to be advocates of all different relationship styles and all different, um, you know. That relationship styles can be fluid and we really honor that concept and thank you for being our partner in that and normalizing this conversation um, because it kind of sounds pretty good to me, honestly. <laughs> I'm, I'm teetering. I'm teetering with an, to an extra pair of hands and more free time. Katie, yeah. you want to raise our kids I mean, together? I know, more right? sleep? More sleep. Oh my God, yeah. 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 Um, well, thank well, you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you. Yes. A delight. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back on at some point when your next book Great. comes out. Awesome. <laughs> um, thank you so much. And Clutterati, um, be sure to check out um, all of her books and her literature and her blog. And with that, I think you know what time it is. We're going to see you next Tuesday. Oh, bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Clit Talk. Be sure to visit clittalkshow.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at clittalkshow for your clit fix in between episodes.